Welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of the I Wanna Believe Podcast. I'm Nomar Slavik. And of course, we've got Kyle Sawyer in the building. What's the word, my friend? How is the winter treating you? Not too much, man. Never never a fan of winter. Yeah. But I'm here for it. (laughs) Okay. Well, as you can tell by the music in our introduction, the topic of this episode takes place in the 90s. Throughout the episode, I'll be sprinkling in a few other musical gems from the 1990s, and I'm very excited about that. I'll also be sprinkling in some clips from the Netflix version of Unsolved Mysteries that covered this case. On March 8th, 1994, hundreds of people reported eerie lights above Lake Michigan. Calls flooded into local authorities to report these strange sightings along nearly 200 miles of Lake Michigan shoreline. The calls were from folks of all walks of life, from police and a meteorologist to residents of Michigan's many beach resort neighborhoods. Most who saw them insisted they were UFOs. Nearly 30 years later, their true origin remains a mystery. Before we jump into the episode, though, I wanted to give a quick reminder that our podcast release schedule for 2023 will be monthly. New episodes will be released around the middle of each month. Also, all of our I Wanna Believe social media and email are in the show notes. You can visit my online store for access to my books and other projects such as Granite Skies, Otherworldly Encounters, We Only Come Out at Night, and more. 
You can visit slavicstore.company.site or the Green Hand Bookshop online or their location in Portland, Maine. They also have copies of my work. Just check the show notes for links. Lastly, my documentary, Otherworldly Amore, is streaming exclusively on Paraflix Paranormal Plus. This is a subscription service much like Netflix and offers monthly or yearly subscriptions. Once subscribed, you have access to not only Otherworldly Amore, but hundreds of other paranormal shows, documentaries, and even horror movies. By using the code OTHERWORLDLYAMORE10 at checkout, you can get 10% off your first three months. That's OTHERWORLDLYAMORE, A-M-O-R, one zero. Link is in the show notes. Alright, let's find out what happened over Lake Michigan in 1994. On March 8, 1994, around 9.30 that night, residents of Lake Michigan's eastern edge began seeing strange lights in the sky and called the police. It looks like a string of Christmas lights that's way up in the sky. There were uh, at least four lights, and they were all flashing like, like okay, they were the sequence. And is there any Air Force airplanes or helicopters flying around in Allegan or Ottawa County tonight? It's not a really emergency. We just called about the UFOs with us. Mm-hmm. They're out there, same airplanes. Our sources for this episode come from the Detroit Free Press, the All That's Interesting website, and you'll also hear clips, like I said before, throughout the episode from the Netflix reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. On November 23, 1953, the Air Defense Command radar tracked an unidentified target moving at 500 miles per hour over Lake Superior in Michigan. In response, an F-89C all-weather jet interceptor from Kinross Air Force Base, piloted by Lieutenant Felix Moncla and Lieutenant R.R. Wilson, took off in pursuit of the target. Air defense radar operators watched as the F-89C closed in on the target and then something unexpected happened. The blip of the target and the blip of the F-89C merged and then faded off the screen. All communications with Lieutenant Moncla and his co-pilot ceased. An extensive search of land and water turned up no trace of the jet, the two men, nor whatever their target might have been. The Kinross case has not attracted much coverage over the years, and there has never been a satisfactory reason given for the disappearance of the jet and its crew. Aviation writer and UFO researcher Donald E. Keough gave the story a proper place in his book, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy. He wrote that after an official Air Force investigation, their explanation concluded that the target seen on radar and pursued by Lieutenant Moncla was a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47. They stated that the F-89C had not actually collided with the Canadian transport plane, but something unspecified happened and the F-89C had crashed. That's it. That was the Air Force's explanation. The perplexing issue with this case is that the Canadian government is repeatedly denied that any such incident involving one of its aircraft ever took place. To add to the conspiracy, in 1958, Keogh got his hands on a leaked Air Force document that made it clear that the Air Force thought the Kinross incident was a UFO encounter and one they considered, quote, of the strangest kind, end quote. Forty-one years later, 
the land and waters of Michigan would be the location of another UFO conspiracy. And this one also had radar confirmation and numerous eyewitnesses that were willing to speak on the record. It all started on the evening of March 8th, 1994, at around 9 p.m. Cindy Pravda was in the kitchen of her home in Grand Haven, Michigan, which sits close to the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. She was speaking on the phone with a friend when she saw something out of the ordinary through her window. She cut her friend off and said, quote, I think there's a UFO in my backyard, end quote. She said it almost as a joke, thinking the moon was full and bright that evening. But something seemed off. The light was too low in the sky. It was about nine o'clock at night and I walked to my kitchen window. That's when I saw the lights and the glow, the light that was outside, it was so bright that I thought it was a huge full moon. I did a double take. No, I saw four lights. That can't be a full moon. So I said, Edna, I think there's a UFO in my backyard the lights were in a straight line they were stationary they were just above our tree line in our pasture the one to the far left moved slowly across the tree line then slowly came back into formation again and the other one to the far right would be to the west was starting to slowly move and it was gone. It was just gone in a, in a flash. She said there was no sound coming from them. They hovered over an area where one of her horses was grazing below. It didn't seem bothered by the otherworldly event happening above it. And it never looked up. Cindy was unable to see a craft behind those lights as they were much too bright to see anything beyond them. But after watching for over a half hour, she was convinced they were UFOs. About 30 minutes later and 22 miles south, in the Lake Michigan shore town of Holland, Holly Graves and her family were about to witness something similar. Holly and her husband Daryl had just gone to bed when their son, who was still awake and in the living room, noticed a bright light outside. He ran to the window and was shocked to see six bright lights hovering over a barn across the street. He yelled for everyone in the house to come see what he was witnessing. Joey started screaming, just, you know, you got to see this. Come in here, you got to see this. Our whole living room was like a spotlight. It was so bright. So my husband, Daryl, said, let's go outside. And this thing is roughly 300 feet it was right across the street, and it wasn't doing anything but going as slow as it possibly could. It was not like a plane. It was not like a blimp. It was not like anything I've ever seen. It was, I said, of a chrome material. It was a cylinder shape, and they were going around in a circle saw no windows, anything like that, and it had lights coming out of the bottom. I said to Daryl, what is that? 
And he said, Holly, it's a UFO. Concerned by what they were seeing, Holly called 911 to report the sighting. Um, we were just wondering, have you heard anything about these lights that are flickering up here? It's like a group. It looks like a string of Christmas lights that's way up in the sky. And we wondered if you had heard anything about it. Not a thing. Wow, you might have had somebody take a look. It's different. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know. It's strange. Um, but it's right out east, southeast. is way up. You can hear my kids screaming in the background on the 911 tape. It's just like a circle of a lot of different lights flickering. Approximately 20 minutes later, an officer arrived. He'd been on routine patrol when he got a call about a strange occurrence happening at the Graves' property. When he got there, he approached the couple and saw that Daryl was looking at something through his binoculars. He introduced himself as Officer Velthaus and asked what was going on. Daryl handed him the binoculars and pointed in the direction of the lights. I was met outside by Holly Graves and her husband. I saw two lights and they were both moving in a southwest direction and they were consistent with the flight maybe of an aircraft of some sort. They were that high in the sky. The lights were went from white to green and they were fairly close together. As I watched them, uh, the one light caught my attention. It moved from the other light and in a quick manner and then kept going southwest. That was noticeable to me different than any normal aircraft that I've seen. Only two lights remained by this time and Holly had gone back inside while her husband and Velthaus watched the UFOs for another 10 minutes. After the officer left, Holly heard Daryl yell from outside. She came running and he told her that the remaining UFO had just broken up into five separate parts and then all of them disappeared. As Velthaus left, he contacted dispatch and was told that more calls were coming in about the lights. As I was trying to follow the lights, we were getting more calls through Ottawa County Central Dispatch. There's like probably four or five lights and they were all flashing right in a row from the top all the way down to the bottom. Uh-huh. It took off real fast. There was four lights and they were blinking back and forth. And there's no way, I mean, a plane's not that wide. And then it, then it started, and then it went down to three lights and it started spinning around. Like, I mean, like it was a circular motion. Then it started going up and down. And then, it, and then it went to two lights and did the same thing. And that was one and just spinning in a circle. They were just kind of hanging there. They came up as a group and then they kind of split. Velthaus then asked dispatch if there was an active radar service in the area that they could contact. He wanted to accomplish two things by doing this. One, were these lights even registering on radar? And two, 
If so, could the radar operator identify them? Dispatch advised that they would contact the National Weather Service for their area, which was located in Muskegon, about 45 minutes and 35 miles north of Holland. Jack Bouchong was settled in for a routine night of monitoring weather instruments. At around 10 p.m., he received a call from the Ottawa County 911 dispatch. He soon realized this was a different kind of phone call. But I was not going to say, just blow them off and say, no, I can't see something like that. I was going to take a look. I was actually interested in myself. The following are portions of the actual call between Jack and the 911 dispatch. Well, the service is Keegan. Hi, Ms. Keegan. This is Ottawa County 911 calling. Yeah, how you doing? Good. You guys have access to a radar there, don't you? Yes, we do. You do. You getting anything weird down in the southern Ottawa County area? Anything weird? Hold on for a second, okay? people that call that I had to have, happened to talk to said it looked like a bunch of cylindrical objects. Well, oh were, my God, what is that? They were going together and coming apart. Yeah, said, they're, well, it's, it's, there's three, and they're, they're lengthwise. Now I'm getting three of them, and uh, I'm getting a third one now, and they're about, they're separated by about, um, looks like about 5,000 feet in height. An officer just sent me a message here. He says, uh, about, about maybe, uh, they're separated by about 50 kilometers. Hmm. They're very strong returns. I'm getting a real, um, they're, they're spiking, so it's, there's something pretty, it's something pretty solid. It's not okay. precipitation or anything, especially okay. up at that height. Yeah. An officer uh, in, in the Holland City just sent me a message. He says, you know, can, can we identify anything further? He says, it looks like uh, three to four of them. I'm seeing three. Yeah. I'm seeing three, and they're separated by, uh, uh, they look like a triangle on my scope. I'm looking one around down by uh, South Haven. I'm seeing another one over Lake Michigan about north west of Benton Harbor, and another one west of, or east of Benton Harbor, which would be uh, near, looks like Decatur. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing three of those. They're very strong. Now I'm getting another one down in uh, Berrien County. These are huge returns. I've never seen anything like this. Not even when I'm doing storms. They're, uh, okay, they look like they're moving, they're all moving toward the south, towards Chicago. There's three returns moving towards Chicago. Um, they're about over the center of uh, Lake Michigan, three of them in a triangle. All right, I will uh, give them a shot. We'll see what I can uh, locate from them. Okay. Thank uh, you very much. You're welcome. All right, appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. <laughs> As you heard, Jack was obviously surprised and confused about what he was seeing on his radar screen. The man was heavily trained as he and others in his position must be as accurate as possible when reporting on severe weather conditions. As a radar operator, we had to learn not just learning how to look at atmospheric phenomena on the radar, but how the radar actually works, uh, what can actually fool the radar. So we're rigorously trained because we're putting out severe weather warnings and tornado warnings based on what we see with the radar. Well, I'm looking at it in the vertical now, and there's a large return down there. It's up about maybe, well, it'll disappear, but it was up about 6,000 feet. It could have been a plane, I don't know, but it was pretty big. Wait a minute. 
If some of that phone call was difficult to hear, I'll explain what Jack saw. Unidentified points on his radar would simply hover. This is highly unusual for aircraft returns. At that moment, he knew he wasn't seeing a weather phenomenon. He was not seeing a blimp. He was not seeing an aircraft. The problem with this situation is that he didn't know what he was seeing. And for a trained radar operator, that doesn't happen very often, if at all. One point of return turned into three points, and they would raise and lower in altitude within seconds. They would appear to fly in formation for a time, and then they would split apart. They would jump 20 miles in a second and follow each other around. Why am I interrupting my own podcast, you might ask? My online store is now fully restocked. Granite Skies, Check. A Strange Trilogy, Check. Otherworldly Encounters, Check. and so much more at slevicstore.company.site. Check the show notes for links. Some titles are also available at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine or greenhandbookshop.com. In all aspects, uh, the objects looked like an aircraft. It just did not act like an aircraft. We know it was solid, it was smooth, it seemed extremely reflective, very high polished metal. We can detect that by the amount of energy coming back in the echo. I was spooked, I was creeped out, I was nervous, I was shaking. The three points on his radar, towards the end of his phone call with 911 dispatch, hovered over an area of southern Lake Michigan. As the points hovered, he saw dozens of other points meet up with the original three. Once it got to that one area in southern Lake Michigan, it stopped, it hovered, it stayed there for a while. I watched them for two, three hours, and they were met up by dozens and dozens of other objects that I could see. They were doing incredible feats, like going uh, from lower, say like at four or 5,000 feet, to going as high as 55,000 feet within a matter of seconds, which none of our military aircraft can do at all. At one point, I saw it move 20 miles out over Lake Michigan in less than a second, so it's moving at 72,000 miles an hour. At that speed, you could fly from New York to L.A. in about two minutes, and there's just no technology I know of that can go that fast. I know it wasn't swamp gas because the weather radar uh, would actually not be able to see swamp gas. I knew that they were not a super refraction of the uh, radar beam or bounce back of the radar back down to the earth because of their movements and their speeds, but also because by uh, raising the radar antenna to the many degrees that I did up, that eliminates all super refraction uh, possibilities. He watched all of the radar returns of these unidentified craft for over two hours. Jack later found out that the portion of the lake that they had all seemed to rendezvous at was the only area of Lake Michigan that had not frozen over. These points met and hovered above open water. Later on, I found out that that was the only clear area of no ice. It was absolutely the northernmost point that you could get without going into solid sheets of ice. So it was, they were out over uh, open water. 
It was a rendezvous point for, uh, for other objects from coming in from other directions. By around 2 a.m., the objects had all but disappeared from radar. When his shift ended and was over and he had time to really think on everything that transpired, it really called into question what he believed as a scientist. He knew what he saw was not normal. It was outside the realm of conventional craft. It was outside the realm of anything he'd ever witnessed on radar before. The following day, calls started coming into the Muskegon Chronicle from citizens reporting the lights they had seen the night before. Journalist Mike Walsh called the 911 dispatch and asked them if they had any calls recorded about the lights from the previous night. They did, and provided him with the recordings. One of those was Jack's phone call. But also, there was a 911 dispatch recording with a National Weather Service radar operator, he alone and the dispatcher set this apart from so much other UFO stuff that I've seen. I listened to five or 10 minutes of it and I called the news desk and said, we got a major story. I got back to the newsroom, batted out a story and got it on the wire. Jack had no idea his call had been recorded, and once the story came out in the paper, Jack's superiors obtained copies of the call, and they were not pleased. Despite the interest in the story, with it being covered in newspapers and on the news, they had a problem with Jack and what he saw. Before we delve into the rest of Jack's story, we wanted to share more information about the sightings. Over 300 reports were called into the police, newspaper, television news stations, and MUFON, the mutual UFO network. A couple days after the event, two airline pilots called Mike Walsh to report what they saw. They were pilots on two separate flights, both flying over Lake Michigan on the night of the 8th. They both reported seeing a similar unidentified craft. After the event, I was contacted by dozens of people from throughout the state. I had uh, calls, I remember, from two pilots, both from major airlines who were coming in over o uh, to O'Hare over Lake Michigan. And both of them separately verified this very bright cylindrical object going in front of them across Lake Michigan and then just disappearing at a phenomenal rate of speed. Both of them did not want their names used, did not want their carriers used, because there was so much uh, prejudice, perhaps. I think there had been a stigma attached to people who claimed to have seen UFOs, because it may suggest that they're mentally ill. You're, you're silly, you're drunk, you're crazy. Witnesses spoke with the news to share what they had seen. 
Residents in places like Grand Haven, Holland, and other lakeshore towns reported seeing the strange phenomenon in the night sky. This was definitely brighter than anything I've ever seen before. Flashing green lights, and once in a while you'd see like a red. About 10 seconds it just went were they watching us? Were they taking samples of the atmosphere? You know, what were they doing? The Mutual UFO Network also became involved. Meet the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, international investigators of strange sights in the skies. They're trying to find just what's haunting the Great Lakes state. MUFON is the world's largest civilian UFO research organization. We've been around for over 50 years and we have over 4,000 members in over 40 countries. We take UFO reports that people uh, send in to us. We can identify usually between 80 to 95% of what comes into us every year. And the ones that we can't identify are the interesting ones that keep us going. Michigan is one of those states where we just happen to have more UFO sightings reported to us than many of the other states. We're always in the top 10. But this UFO event in March of 94, we're talking over 300 witnesses to UFOs in a single night. This was not just on the west side of the state. Michigan's got 82 counties, and 42 counties had UFO sightings that night of March 8th. MUFON officials say this is the hottest UFO case in the country right now, not only because of the mass sightings, but the fact that these objects have actually been tracked on radar. You can't say nothing happened that night. It's scientific. Here is an instrument recording something that is undeniable. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? And that brings us back to Jack and his radar anomalies. After the story broke, his colleagues gave him a hard time. They would pull pranks involving jokes about UFOs. While he would sometimes laugh in the moment, he had a difficult time dealing with the ridicule. He didn't want his reputation as a scientist and weather expert tarnished. He was not prepared for what happened next. The National Weather Service did not like that Jack's phone call was leaked by the Muskegon Chronicle, and they advised Jack not to speak with the press. The Weather Service then issued a statement dismissing the radar report saying that it did not track UFOs, but instead, the radar operator misread the radar returns, and all that the radar showed were temperature, inversions, and ground clutter. Jack knew this was incorrect, but he kept his mouth shut. He was then advised by his direct superior that it would probably be best if he got a job elsewhere. The National Weather Service, they did not want to be known as the UFO Reporting Center, so they tried to make it go away in a hurry. Meteorologists with the National Weather Service said a temperature inversion, a layer of warm air a few thousand feet above the Earth's surface, could have been the culprit for the strange returns on radar, something called ground clutter. At this point, I was told not to talk or give interviews to anybody. I was very anxious because I, I worked my entire life for that job. 
If uh, I had disobeyed an order and talked to the press about it, I have no doubt in my mind that they would have tried to fire me or, or actually uh, uh, ruin the future in my career, yeah. My supervisor, Leo, had to uh, toe the line. And in fact, when I talked to him later about what this was doing to my career, Leo was the one that said, Jack, you got to get out of Michigan. I knew I had to hurry up and, and, and get a job to wherever I could, based solely because of this UFO uh, event. But I was depressed to have to leave some such good friends, childhood friends, and uh, my family. That was the impact of my career, yes. In August of 1994, Jack relocated to Atlanta, Georgia, and took on a new job within the National Weather Service. Despite this, after Jack's retirement in 2016, he couldn't stop thinking about what he saw on radar, and he began to shift his retired life into researching UFOs. After the U.S. government admitted to continuing their research into UFOs in the Navy UFO videos that were released, Jack decided to revisit the event. In 2021, he traveled back to the Lake Michigan area to speak with witnesses. I've been dreaming about this for 27 years. What I'm hoping to get out of the eyewitnesses is to get more information out of them and, and actually see exactly where they were so that I can tie together what I was seeing with the people on the ground, with the radar. When you have both radar confirmation and ground-based eyeball confirmation, that's the proof that there was a tornado on the ground. And so why not for UFOs? He first met with MUFON researcher Virginia Tilly, and she shared with him what she had uncovered from witnesses. There was one sighting that was of particular interest to Jack. It was from a couple who happened to be camping out on the lake. This was one of the most unusual things I've ever heard. March 8th okay. of 94. Young couple that were camping out that night, a nice cold night, right on the lake after midnight. The wife woke up. There was a tall tower of water. They said it looked like a huge waterfall. Went up almost as high as what looked like the height of the sky. At least 20 feet wide. Okay. It was lit behind and from above. And they're looking off towards the Chicago area, towards the Southwest. They both were so frightened, they grabbed a couple of quick things that were laying with them and they ran up the stairs as fast as they could go. He also met with Holly Graves and Officer Veldhaus. They shared their accounts with Jack and they reaffirmed their belief that they saw something truly otherworldly that night. Despite over 300 reports and Jack's radar confirmations and his meetings with witnesses years later, there was still no definitive answer for what hovered and flew over Lake Michigan in March of 1994. 
Hundreds of witnesses, including police officers and what Jack saw on his radar, believe that they saw an extraterrestrial craft. What do you believe? And that's all we've got for this third episode of Season 6 of the I Want to Believe podcast. We'll hope you join us again next month for an all-new episode. Feel free to throw us a follow on our Insta at 207Believe or DM us some show topic ideas. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Kyle Sawyer. And before we close out the episode, I did want to end on a a little bit of a different note. The closing song that I'm going to use, it's from an old band from Ellsworth, Maine. They were around in the mid to late 90s called Sylvatic Rant. And I'm actually not sure if the band is just called Sylvatic and the album was called Rant or if the whole band name is Sylvatic Rant. I'm not 100% sure on that nowadays, but John Condon uh, was a uh, bass player in the band. So shout out John Condon. Also uh, shout out Nick Olson. I doubt you guys are listening, but I love you. Anyways, this band was kind of like your quintessential 90s rock band, if you will. And with being uh, friends with some of the guys in the band, uh, I really got a taste for their music, even though I'm mostly a hip hop guy. But, you know, even back then I was uh, I was bumping Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and Smashing Pumpkins and a bunch of different stuff. Weezer. So, you know, rock music or music with guitars, if you will, wasn't I wasn't a stranger to that. And there's a song of theirs called Climbing that really spoke to me. And the first time I heard it, we actually all performed together at Walmart in Ellsworth, Maine, if you can believe it. It was under a big tent in their parking lot, and it was like a music showcase. And uh, I think the winner got a chance to go on the local radio or some shit like that. And it was the first time that I performed an original song as a solo artist. So I'm insanely nervous. I'm just in high school. I'm probably a sophomore and crazy nervous, but the band is there and that was cool. I kind of hung out with them for a little bit and they, I, I believe I played and then they played after me. The song they did was climbing. This one's for all of us who had big dreams after high school, whether they came true, maybe we're still working on them, or even if they're dead in the water, the fact that you had big dreams is a big fucking deal. This one's for us. Pretty pictures, no photo illustrations.